Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. A brief scheduling note to start. We originally said two telehealth follow-up episodes before we launched into our Season 3 Focus on Food. We aired the first of those episodes, and in what should be a surprise to nobody at all, the second planned episode is waiting on some policy decisions that just haven't been decided yet. Why do I wait on these things? I get fooled every single time. I recognize my error, and I have a new plan. We're going forward with our food and health episodes, and you will just be pleasantly surprised by bonus telehealth talk when you least expect it. I mean, it won't be mid-episode, so maybe not when you least expect it. We're sprinkling it in along the way, and we will not wait any longer for food and healthcare policy, so let's jump in. The connections between food and health, that's a giant topic. I like to think about it in a few basic categories. First is the fundamental idea that we need nourishing food in sufficient quantity every day to have any chance at good health. The amount of food available, and ease with which it's available, has an impact on both physical and mental health. And when I say nourishing food, that means what you might imagine. A relatively diverse diet that includes multiple vegetables that are not potato chips. The policies that would accomplish this big goal of setting a diet-based foundation for good health are pretty far-ranging. You need to look at whether our agricultural system produces enough healthy foods. It doesn't, by the way. And whether we should worry about environmental threats to production as our climate changes. You have to consider public transportation and affordable housing patterns, and whether the food we grow is easy for everyone to get to. Then there's the economics of what's affordable, and the question of what food we want to eat. Whether we want to eat any particular food item is complicated, so let's pause here for a moment. What we choose to eat is not just a matter of willpower. It's a matter of what flavors we're used to from our childhood, how much time we have to prepare our meals, and our skills in preparing them, our larger food environment and the messages it sends, whether we can not only afford the healthy option, but also afford to take a chance on something our kids might not like, whether you grew up in the 1990s when America inexplicably decided to replace fat with sugar. Like I said, it's complicated. When you get into complicated cultural questions like this, That's where a lot of policymakers tap out. But that's the interesting thing about food policy. People have not shied away from these complications. Rules around what size sodas you can sell. Those are designed to make soda less desirable because you have to rethink it each time you get a refill. Local food in schools. These programs aren't just about local purchasing. They engage kids in exploring new food by activities like growing gardens, taste testing recipes, and meeting farmers. This whole bucket of considerations is what I call macro food policy, from the soil to the culture. We know in a macro sense that this absolutely affects health. When you build a society where all cues point to living off of corn syrup manifested in 20 different forms and brightened with chemical dyes, you're going to have bad health outcomes. But rebuilding these systems does not fall entirely on the shoulders of healthcare. It takes many different fields of expertise to pull off the kind of change we need. A different type of food and health is the somewhat fraught area of eating particular foods for a specific health outcome, either preventing or treating a disease. A true food-as-medicine approach. There are places where the treatment link is highly specific. Patients with celiac disease eliminating gluten. Vegans eating grains fortified with B12. Sailors a few hundred years ago stocking up on lemons to avoid scurvy. There are also more broad diet modifications that can be effective for goals like controlling blood glucose levels or treating hypertension. Also, some things we don't always think about, like illnesses that affect the mechanics of chewing and swallowing that require a change in the texture of food as part of treatment. 
This world also swings all the way over to fad diets and outright fraud. Belle Gibson, a popular Australian food blogger who wrote about how to use diet to cure cancer, was recently fined half a million dollars. And this wasn't a small, dishonest part of the internet. She ran The Whole Pantry, a top-selling health app on Apple, before it was pulled. Now, Belle Gibson was a con artist, not a doctor. But we don't have to go far into popular media to find questionable claims by people who do practice medicine. It can be hard to draw the appropriate dividing lines in this section of the food is health world, especially knowing that a baseline healthy diet is required for all wellness. Generally, we can say that the commercial world errs too far on the side of attributing miracle cures to the latest superfood, and the medical world errs too far on the side of dismissing food as medicine. So we have two approaches to food and health. The macro perspective, ensuring everyone can have a sufficient and nutritious diet, and the individual perspective, using food as a prevention or treatment for a particular disease. I suggest that there's a third category, often overlooked in policy, which is healthcare practices as local businesses. In Vermont, like much of the country, healthcare is one of our largest economic sectors and the fastest growing. It has traditionally been a role of business leaders, whatever their business type, to help ensure that all members of their community be well-fed. I mean, that's even a plot point in A Christmas Carol. We learn about this stuff as kids. The focus of these podcast episodes will be on healthcare practices playing unique roles as medical providers in connecting food with health. But that's leaving out a lot of activity, like hosting community events, organizing volunteer trips to pack food boxes or sort donations, giving out small grants to help with food projects, and other activities undertaken not because the project requires the physician, but because that's what it means for a business to be a good citizen in their community. All of these threads will need to come together as part of COVID-19 response. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, in 2019, 10.5% of U.S. households experienced food insecurity. That covers not only running out of food, but also making compromises on what foods you eat as a way to stretch limited resources, so it's a useful measure from a health perspective. 10.5% of households is 10.5 too many. And then there was COVID-19. COVID-19 didn't just disrupt the economy, which would be bad enough. It also disrupted our ability to get to grocery stores, take part in things like community meals, maintain support networks for people who need help with food, and it disrupted the food supply lines themselves. Think of this. Our country's largest nutrition initiative is school lunch, and overnight, we didn't have any school. COVID-19 is an unprecedented disruption to American food security. But we're going to fight against it. And that is why we're exploring the topic of food access and healthcare for season three of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. 